Well, good morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Uh, go ahead and make your way in as we uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for uh, the grace that you have afforded to us in your son. That, uh, that you have been uh, good to us, that you've called us out of uh, dominion of darkness into the kingdom of your son. And, uh, and so we're grateful for that. We're grateful for the gift of your spirit who illuminates and, uh, and teaches and uh, is our uh, helper. And, uh, and we're grateful for the gift of, uh, of scripture. And so pray that we would be uh, faithful to it in all that we, uh, we say today. And so uh, pray that you would help us as we think through uh, these uh, topics and theological equipping, that it would be encouraging and edifying and, uh, and that we would be uh, made to look more like your son as, uh, as disciples. And so we pray these things because you're good and you do good. And so we ask it all with hope and expectation in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, thanks for coming. This semester, we have been talking about social and political theology. So we've discussed things like racism and feminism and social justice and abortion and just war theory and gun control and all of these uh, spicy, hot-button, uh, controversial political uh, conversations. Today, we want to deal with the, uh, the topic of sexuality in politics. Now, we're not going to talk about kind of the, uh, the uh, sexuality of politicians so we're not going to discuss like the indiscretions and the exploits of the Kennedys and Clintons and Councilman Dexharts of the world or something like that. Instead, what we want to talk about is kind of the politiz politicization uh, and even weaponization of sexuality in our culture. So we aren't really talking about sexuality as, uh, as we would in systematic theology. So we've already actually done that. When we talked about anthropology, we talked about a lot of these issues here in theological equipping class from a systematic theological uh, perspective. And, uh, and so that's really necessary. If you haven't already considered those things, I'd encourage you to do so because a lot of what we're talking about today in terms of the theory and the politics and the culture and society and so forth is dependent upon you already having an understanding of what the Bible says about homosexuality and transgenderism and so forth. So we've taught on each of those uh, before, so go back and listen to that audio if you're not familiar with that. So this lesson today, we'll assume that you're already familiar with those uh, things. And uh, so let me tell you what we want to do this morning. We're really going to talk about three main things, three main things. The first one is we want to give an overview of how culture has changed in regards to sexuality. A few of the signs of the time, uh, if you will. Next, we wanna talk about why we're here. What are the, uh, why have these changes taken place? What are kind of the, the contextual, what, what are the historical, philosophical movements that have led to where we are? And then lastly, we wanna, wanna consider a few foundational truths. So that'll be kind of the more systematic theo uh, theological perspective uh, here. So let's begin with uh, where uh, we uh, are or how things have changed. I think there's a typo uh, there in, uh, in your notes, but basically how do we get from first century Rome all the way to 21st century America? So in order to understand where we are today as a culture, you need to know where we have been historically. So let's rewind all the way back to the Roman Empire 
which as you're probably uh, familiar with, was not exactly uh, an exemplar and not exactly a model for sexual mores. Within Roman culture, you have all kinds of things that would be considered very sexually immoral. You have pedophilia, you have homosexuality, you have prostitution, you have polygamy, you have adultery. All of those in various contexts uh, were uh, either tolerated or even celebrated in certain instances. So when the apostles critique Rome, and they do, one of the things that they often highlight is the sexual immorality of it. For instance, comparing Rome to Babylon, the apostle John writes in Revelation 17, three through five, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So it was within this immoral Roman culture that the gospel was first proclaimed. And Christianity began to spread kind of grassroots at first. It began to spread throughout uh, the empire. We'll talk about that next semester as we discuss church history. And so by the end of the third century, a significant proportion of the empire had actually been converted to Christianity. And then in 313, the beginning of the fourth century, Constantine, the emperor, declared uh, what was called the Edict of Milan, which granted freedom of worship to various religions, including Christianity. So it's at this point that you see this, uh, this systematic and, uh, and, and periodic persecution of Christians uh, that uh, ceases. And then within the next generation, the generation after this and the, in, in the Edict of Milan, Christianity actually became the official state religion of, uh, of the empire. Given all of these factors together, Judeo-Christian morality began to exercise much more of an influence on the, uh, the society, and aspects were even codified in the law. In the 6th century, uh, Emperor Justinian passed laws that made homosexuality and pederasty and prostitution illegal. So from that point on, basically, the Judeo-Christian sexual mores, sexual norms had won out, and, uh, and so those views on sexuality in the, in, in the West remain relatively stable for over 1,000 years. So uh, influenced by Judeo-Christian uh, morality, views on sexuality in the West, by and large, did not change for over 1,000 years. This meant that in general, Sex was appropriate within marriage. Marriage was defined as between one man and one woman. And men and women were defined by biological uh, distinctions and theological distinctions. So in general, wherever Western culture prevailed, so did these sexual mores and norms. Sexual morality was certainly still practiced by individuals, but those acts were generally viewed as immoral or unethical or shameful by society at, uh, at large. That being the case, over the past 150 years, you've probably noticed there's been this, uh, this sea of change, these drastic modifications in how we understand sex within culture. And so the cultural assumptions that we make about sex, in fact, just in the past five years, there have been these seismic shifts, not only culturally, but also politically. So let's go back five years Back to 2015, what happened in 2015? Talk about three really significant cultural events just from that year. You're probably familiar 
with, uh, with a couple of these at least, but on June 26, 2015, there was something very significant that happened in regards to sexuality and politics, and that is that the Supreme Court in Obergefell B, uh, v. Hodges ruled that the fundamental right to marriage is guaranteed to same-sex couples by both the due process and the equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment. In other words, in one moment, by judicial fiat, gay marriage was now legalized in all 50 states. That was 2015. Also, in that same year, Glamour Magazine gave their Woman of the Year honor to who? Anybody know? Caitlyn Jenner, right? Which is the alter ego of former Olympian Bruce Jenner. Not only that, but 2015 also saw the first of a series of corporate boycotts of states or cities who adopted laws protecting those with religious convictions on sexuality from having to violate uh, those consciences by supporting same-sex marriage and so forth. So Indiana passed such a law. Uh, the governor at the time, by the way, was Mike Pence. And then a coalition of uh, corporations responded uh, by strongly opposing them and calling for boycotts uh, of the entire state of Indiana. And so corporations like Apple, uh, NCAA, the Subaru, Salesforce.com, Angie's List, a number of, uh, of others. And we've seen that trend sort of continue. Anytime there's the passing of a law that protects religious freedom, there is this uh, backlash, this, uh, this corporate coalition. So 2015 was this major turning point in the cultural tide but those who are really familiar with what's been going on in culture have recognized that the tide has actually been changing for decades. Ever since the sexual revolution of the 60s, in particular, there have been these shifts on our, culturals, uh, our cultural norms and views uh, regarding sexuality. But in, in the past decade or so, that little trickle that you've seen historically has kind of turned into a flood. So since then, there's been this near universal acceptance of homosexuality and transgenderism within American culture. As a result, it's not like the cultural war is actually still being fought. It's over as far as the culture is concerned. Uh, with the exception of a, uh, a few conservative uh, religious folks, whether they are Christians or members of uh, various cults or other religions or whatnot, uh, by and large, these things have already been assumed in culture. The fighting is over. The question is really only how far the movement will go with arguments already being advanced for things like the legalization of pedophilia and polyamory, which is group relationships and so forth. So 40 years ago, think about this, 40 years ago, there was no support whatsoever of gay marriage. You take the most ex extremely progressive politician out there, there is zero support. Today it's legal in all 50 countries, I'm sorry, in, in all 50 states, and 67% of all Americans support it. And then even 10 years ago, just one decade ago, transgenderism was far from mainstream consciousness. Now it's on your coffee cups, it's on billboards, it's on YouTube ads, uh, it's on your TV screens. For the entirety of human history, literally for as long as, as a history has existed, for as long as humanity has existed, we have known gender binary, right? All people have either been classified as male or female. And those two th uh, groups are mutually exclusive. That's no longer the case. Th there are now at least 64 recognized genders. And not only that, but there are also these tons of pronouns, this pronoun confusion. No longer is it just his and hers, but, uh, and he and she, but air, A-E-R, per, Z, 
Zer, Zim, Ver, Vis, sounds like learning German or something. Even the potential vice president-elect has her preferred pronouns on her official Twitter page because to misgender someone today is seen as the harshest of cultural slights. So this new perspective uh, on sexuality is no longer this fringe idea that's kind of relegated to the margins of society. Instead, we've seen that the margins have actually become the center. And what has historically been the center, that is the Judeo-Christian perspective on sexuality, has been marginalized. That's been pushed out of the center and, uh, and marginalized. Not only marginalized, but also penalized. For example, teachers in the U.S. have been fired for failing to use a student's preferred pronouns. Businesses have been prosecuted for refusing to violate their consciences in, in regards to same-sex marriages. Homeless shelters for abused women have been sued for refusing to admit biological males. Foster parents in many states are required to provide children suffering from gender dysphoria with transition-affirming therapies, even if those parents are medically or morally opposed to transgenderism. Multiple states prohibit therapy to minors that attempt to help them overcome same-sex desires. Here in Dallas, the buckle of the Bible belt there was this prolonged custody, uh, custody battle recently over whether or not a father could prevent his seven-year-old son from transitioning to a girl at the request of his pediatrician mother. Books that argue against this new sexual ethic are being removed from Amazon and Target. Tweets that say that men, and women, uh, men are men and women are women are getting flagged as abusive and getting someone locked out of Twitter, not to mention the boycotts and doxing and public ridicule that people and companies face if they don't bow the knee to Eros or Aphrodite, the god of sex of this age. And unfortunately, these just seem to be the birth pains, the kind of Braxton Hicks of what's coming. They're the initial skirmishes to kind of test our cultural defenses. In other words, unless there is some special providence of God that intervenes, things will only get worse. And this is where we are as a culture. So why are we here? Why is it that all of these things are happening, particularly so quickly over the past 150 years? And then why are we seeing such a, a, a drastic movement uh, over the past five to 10 years in particular? So why is that? Well, there's a scene in, uh, in The Office, the American version of The Office, where Michael Scott asks uh, his HR rep, he says, why are you the way that you are? Honestly, every time I try to do something fun or exciting, you make it not that way. I hate so much about the things you choose to be. And that's kind of how I feel when it comes to culture. Why are we the way that we are as a society? Has there been some new revelation from God has there been some scientific study, some scientific breakthrough that supports the upending of the past two millennia of Western civilization? The answer is no. So what has happened? Well, there's a whole lot of answers to that. I want to suggest uh, six. I had a, a number of others, but for the sake of time, we'll just discuss six. Those six are secularization, individualization, a reaction or even overreaction to Victorian or Puritan morality, medical and technological advancements, pop culture, and then philosophical movements. So we'll begin with secularization. This is probably the most obvious. What is secularization? Well, Os Guinness defines it as the process through which, starting from the center and moving outwards, successive sectors of society and culture have been freed from the decisive influence of religious ideas and institutions. In other words, as our culture has grown increasingly secular, that is detached from its historic worldview, historic Christian worldview in general, 
and biblical thinking in particular, obviously that would then lead to a a subsequent detachment from the Christian view of morality. If you're detached from Christianity in general, then you're gonna be detached from the Christian view of sexuality in particular. So that's secularization. I won't go into detail there. That's probably the most obvious. The second one is also somewhat obvious, and that is individualization. What's interesting is, uh, and maybe a a little bit uh, ironic, is that historically, sexual expressions were private. Your actual expressions of sexuality were something that was reserved for the bedroom, whereas sexual ethics, that is what uh, society thought of sex, was societal, that was public. So sexual expression was private, sexual ethics were uh, societal or public, but interestingly, those have been flipped, right? Now sexual expression is public, your sexuality is on full display. Again, you put your pronouns on Twitter, you go and march in a a parade or whatever it might be. So sexuality is on display, it's more public than it's ever been, but sexual ethics have been individualized. Nobody can tell me what to do with my body. It's none of your business. So this past week, there was a woman in our parking lot. We looked out the window and she was drawing something on our parking lot with, uh, with chalk. And, uh, and so Zach and Tim were like debating what we should do. And I, why hasn't anybody just gone and asked her what she's doing? That idea hadn't come to them. So uh, I went outside and I walked over to the woman. I said, hey, can I help you? And she looked at me and she said, no. And I thought, that's a weird answer. You're drawing on someone else's property. And, uh, and yet she saw no reason why that would be weird. She acted like it was none of my business what she was drawing on the church parking lot. That's what cultural individualization is like. Historically, sexual ethics were God's business. They were the church's business. They were even society's business. But today our assumptions and attitudes have changed such that it's no one else's Business And as a result of this, our views on sex and marriage as a culture have changed. Sex has been kind of uncoupled uh, from procreation such that it's uh, almost exclusively seen as a form of recreation, a, a form just of enjoyment. And marriage is no longer this idea of this lifelong covenant, but instead this indefinite romantic bond with tax benefits. So that's kind of the, the effect of individualization. This next one might be less obvious, but one of the contributing factors to this modern sexual revolution is this reaction or even this overreaction to Victorian morality or Puritanism. We'll talk about this a little bit uh, next semester as we talk about church history, but lots of Puritans were really good, all right? John Owen, John Bunyan, sometimes Jonathan Edwards is even classified uh, as a Puritan, all of the good Johns, but uh, Puritanism also had some really strange and unhelpful elements. In particular, many of the Puritans in their desire for holiness kind of swung the pendulum toward legalism. And as we've seen theologically, we've talked about this a number of times in sermons and so forth, the reaction to legalism is licentiousness, right? It's kind of like falling asleep while driving. Right, you fall asleep while you're driving and then you go over these, uh, those rumble strips and so you wake up and maybe your instinctual response is to then jerk the wheel as hard as you can the other direction and so you just end up in a ditch on the other side of the road. That's what legalism does. Legalism produces licentiousness. Licentiousness is the overreaction to the sin of 
legalism. So for example, which kids typically most struggle with alcohol as soon as they leave the home? Not generally those who are taught that alcohol is a good gift that's created by God and given to his people to be enjoyed appropriately and to be stewarded wisely, but those whose parents kind of treat this like this forbidden evil. Well, the same is true with sex as well. When sex is restricted beyond the biblical boundaries, the effect is often the strong overreaction to those boundaries. And that brings us back to Puritanism because sex was this really strange thing in Victorian and Puritan morality. For example, sex on the Sabbath wasn't allowed and table skirts were invented because of this. Do you know that? Table skirts were invented. The reason they were invented was because some men found table legs too arousing. That's really weird. That's so weird, I don't even have to make a joke about it. So maybe you've heard the critique of, uh, of Puritanism, that it's the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. That's obviously a caricature. Again, we'll, uh, we'll talk about this next semester. There were some really good Puritans. But part of what we see today is a reaction to the excesses of the past, the excessive prohibitions and restrictions and limitations of, uh, of sexuality, this legalism that produces this licentiousness as an overreaction. Another one of the factors that leads to where we are today is medical and technological advancements. A number of examples of this, for example, in the middle of the 20th century, The sexual revolution was pushed forward by two medical advances. The first one being the widespread advancement of birth control in the form of the pill. And then penicillin, which was useful in fighting a number of the most common uh, sexually transmitted diseases. Coincidentally, those two advancements came within a few years of each other historically. So think about the importance of those just happened to uh, occur together in history. Historically, the two main non-religious barriers to extramarital sex and promiscuity were what? The twin fears of pregnancy and disease. And then both of those were significantly reduced in the middle of the 20th century by the, uh, the invention of the pill and penicillin. Think about also how abortion and hormone suppressants and hormone supplements and gender transition uh, surgeries and all of these other medical innovations kind of further the movement because it now makes something available which historically wasn't available. And then medicine isn't the only area of evolution but in technology as well with the invention of the internet which can be a really great resource but also allows all of the dumbest people of the world to kind of pull all of their ignorance uh, together. And then it ushers in uh, as well the increasing availability of pornography, which is uh, like a uh, a drug that numbs its users and creates a drive for more and more different and diverse experiences, a better high, if you will. So 40 years ago, if you wanted pornography, it was available, but you kind of had to work for it. Today, that isn't the case, right? It's ubiquitous. And there's also this this semblance of it being private. It's seemingly secret, right? All you have to do is push a few buttons and there it is. And no one will ever know except Google and anyone Google sells it to and so forth. But these medical and technological advancements has kind of fueled and enabled the, uh, the sexual revolution that we're seeing today. In addition to that, pop culture, right? Think back to when you or your parents uh, were growing up Right, the Beatles sang songs about holding hands and that was scandalous. Elvis shook his pelvis and that was super uh, offensive. 
Songs were more subtle. They were laced with innuendo. Musicians just didn't come out and sing about sex explicitly. They sang about things like afternoon delight and those kinds of things. And then you contrast that with today and nothing is taboo. Nothing is subtle. In fact, one of the most popular songs of the year, I won't even mention because it's so uh, explicit. And the same is true of TV. Just about every show on network uh, TV features homosexuality. The Office, Parks and Rec, Glee, Grey's Anatomy, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Modern Family, and on and on you could go. In fact, it would be very difficult to find a popular TV show uh, today that doesn't feature homosexuality or transgenderism in a sympathetic and approving light. By the way, this is not incidental. This is very strategic. The LGBTQ uh, plus community has engineered this revolution in a lot of ways through a number of means using pop culture. First, by desensitizing society. That's part of the goal. We're so used to seeing it on our TV uh, screens and in movies and in ads and so forth that it no longer seems strange and foreign to us. We just kind of build up a resistance to it or a tolerance of it and it isn't a far step from tolerating it to accepting it and then normalizing it and that's the goal. So that's the first thing to do is desensitize society. The second way that they do that is through the politics of parody. So think back over the past two decades. When you're watching a TV show or you're watching a movie and some character in that TV show or in that movie opposes homosexuality or opposes transgenderism, is that person portrayed as generally loving and articulate and informed? Of course not. They're deliberately caricatured so that they seem like ignorant bigots. Again, this is intentional. This is strategic to create this kind of straw man that's more easy to knock over rather than engaging with actual, actual arguments about worldview and ethics and logic and so forth. And not only does that make the Christian view seem really backward and archaic and bigoted, but it also makes the LGBTQ community seem like victims and thus worthy of sympathy and pity. And that's a really powerful motivator for society. So they have the desensitizing society, the politics of parody. And then third strategy is to celebrate the courage of those who come out by resisting traditional norms. Now, it isn't really courageous to do what all of culture already celebrates, but that doesn't matter. Bruce Jenner is this kind of washed up athlete, but he becomes Caitlin and all of a sudden he's relevant. Or Bradley Manning is a literal traitor, guilty of literal treason, But then he becomes Chelsea Manning and all of a sudden he's this cultural hero. So this pop culture effect has been a powerful means of changing the feelings and assumptions of culture. And you see evidence of it every day of your life. In fact, you've probably been desensitized to it to a great degree. You probably don't even notice it anymore. Whereas it's on our coffee cups, it's on our Google banners, it's on our YouTube ads, it's even on our Skittles and Oreo cookies, right? These things are ubiquitous in society. Next thing, last uh, big one that I wanna uh, talk about is philosophy. This is, uh, I think, the most important one for you to recognize. We've said this before, but cultural changes always come about as a result of philosophical changes. Cultural changes come about as a result of philosophical movements. Culture is kind of like a boat that's floating on a river and that river represents philosophical currents. Wherever those currents take us, culture follows along. Sometimes it's a little bit slower, but it always follows along. No culture can resist the drift of its predominant philosophical assumptions. 
So there's lots of things that we could talk about philosophically that have contributed to where we are today. The Enlightenment, Darwinism, et cetera, but I wanna mention three main philosophical streams that have significantly affected our contemporary cultural view of sexuality. Those are feminism, existentialism, and postmodernism. Feminism, existentialism, and postmodernism. First, feminism. We've talked about feminism quite a bit this semester. As we've noted, there have been three main waves and each has had distinct goals. So you have to understand this. You have to understand this. Feminism today does not mean that men and women should be treated equally. That is not the way that word functions in society and culture today. That was what first wave, late 19th, early 20th century, first wave feminism desired. First wave feminism was relatively good. It fought for things like women's suffrage, the right to vote. But it still wanted men to be men and women to be women. But starting with second wave feminism, with the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s, second wave feminism was much more radical. It didn't argue for equality the way that we have understood it. It argued for a blurring of lines between the sexes. So the enemy of second wave feminism wasn't just misogyny, the hatred of women, The enemy was biology, any role distinctions at all. For second wave feminists, any distinctions are oppressive and sexist. If there's anything a man can do that a woman can't do, that is considered sexist. And then third wave feminism takes those assumptions of second wave feminism and applies it uh, to persons of color, particularly uh, black women. We've mentioned this before, but modern feminism isn't liberating to women. If there's anybody here that is sympathetic to modern feminism, let me just tell you, it's actually horribly demeaning for women because it implies the only way for a woman to ever be free and to flourish is to what? Become more like a man. So if you say that you're a feminist today, the connotation is no longer that you want equality. It's a particular view of equality in which all differences between the sexes are discarded as being oppressive and patriarchal. That is the way that the word functions. That is the philosophy of feminism as it exists today. So what does this have to do with changing views of sexuality? Well, number one, it blurs the distinction between the sexes, which ironically then opens the door to transgenderism. If there's no real major distinctions between the sexes, that opens the door to transgenderism. Even even though uh, logically those should be philosophically opposed. A consistent feminist should actually reject transgenderism because it provides another way for a man to subvert her experiences. We've talked about this before. But if a transgender woman becomes president, have we had then our first female president? Or is that yet another thing that men have stolen from women. So transgenderism and feminism uh, should not philosophically uh, um, be able to coexist and yet uh, they do because modern feminism blurs these distinctions between the sexes. It also distorts the biblical meaning of gender. For example, there's a reason that feminism is linked historically to abortion. Why? Because pregnancy is seen as this obstacle to female flourishing which is ironic because biblically, pregnancy is a beautiful part of female flourishing. And then it also elevates the idea of sex without consequences or shame. What second wave feminism did is it looked around at society and it saw there's this this, uh, harsh double standard. Men could be promiscuous and that was celebrated. That was actually seen as a virtuous sort of uh, noble ideal, but women were shamed for it. And they said, that's a problem. 
And Christians say, we agree, that is a problem. That double standard is inconsistent and unjust. But what feminism said is here's the solution. We're going to destigmatize sex so that we too can have sex without consequences. So rather than fighting to expose the double standard by calling men to repentance from immorality, feminism just sought to redefine immorality to make it moral. So that's feminism. There's a lot of other things uh, that we could talk about there. Go back and listen to Zach's uh, lesson on feminism and the Me Too movement for uh, more on that. The next one to briefly mention is existentialism. What is existentialism? Well, the big idea of existentialism is uh, this phrase, existence precedes essence. Existence precedes essence. In other words, something can exist before it has essence, before it has definition, before it has identity or value. So historically, truth was, sub, uh, was objective, right? Something was true uh, before or even whether or not you experienced that thing. Murder was inherently bad. Adultery was inherently bad, um, regardless of what you thought about those things. It didn't matter if you had actually ever murdered someone or not. You didn't have to be a murderer or an adulterer to have an opinion about that or have convictions about that. Historically, essence that is the definition of something, preceded your experience of that. But then philosophers come along, these existentialist philosophers like John Paul Sartre and others, and they said that's backward. Truth actually begins with you, it's more subjective. You define truth, you define what things are as you experience them. So you exist and then you define it or you give it its essence. They don't come predefined. By the way, who was Sartre's paramour? Simone de Beauvoir, de Beauvoir, this second wave feminist. So you see the, the marrying together of feminism and existentialism. Now apply that idea to sexuality and what do you get? Well, concepts like gender and sexuality and marriage, they don't come predefined by tradition or by culture or even by revelation. Instead, you get to define those for yourself. That's existentialism. And then no one can define it for you because your experience is what's actually authoritative. That's why there's such a high regard today for the idea that if you yourself are not gay or you yourself are not transgendered, you don't have a right to speak about those things because you haven't experienced them and thus you don't have the opportunity to give them essence or definition or value. Or if you're not a woman, you can't speak about feminism. Or if you aren't a minority, you can't speak about race or whatever it might be. These are all uh, the uh, uh, offspring or products or of, of existentialism. And then last one we want to talk about is postmodernity and critical theory. Postmodernity and critical theory. We've talked a bit about postmodernism and critical theory this semester. If you want to understand what's happening in culture in general, and then particularly in race and social justice and so forth, and you need to understand a bit about these particular philosophical movements. So what is postmodernism? Postmodernism is, is this huge philosophical idea, but let me give you the succinct summary of a, the major component, component. It's a way of seeing life and truth and authority as creating in-groups and out-groups. That's what postmodernism post is all about. Those who are in and then those who are marginalized. So, so postmodernism is concerned with moving those who are marginalized into the center and then marginalizing what is, uh, what is currently central. Does that make sense? So we talked about earlier how Judeo-Christian views on, uh, on morality have moved from the center to the margins 
And what was historically marginally, even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, what is historically marginal has now been moved to the center. That is a result of postmodernism. Why is culture talking about white supremacy? Why is culture talking about patriarchy? Why is uh, culture talking about heteronormativity? Why is culture talking about homosexuality and transgenderism? Because postmodernism and its stepchild, critical theory. And this philosophy has a number of distinguishing marks that you'll probably recognize. The first one is this profound skepticism. This is a, a, an essential aspect, a, a, an essential distinguishing mark of postmodernism. This profound skepticism. Skepticism of what? Just about everything. Profound skepticism about everything except itself, but mostly toward historic and objective means of knowledge. So there's this rejection of logic, there's this uh, rejection of tradition, there's this rejection of science in favor of experience instead. So if you've seen people debating whether or not two plus two actually equals four, that's an actual debate that's happening in our society right now, or if it might be five or it might be some made up number or something like that, that's the reason why. So sometimes it's been said that postmodernism is this rejection of the notion of absolute truth. That's not really accurate. That's not what postmodernism does. It doesn't reject the idea of absolute truth, but it's just profoundly skeptical that we could ever actually arrive at or possess that truth. In particular, it's skeptical at our tools for arriving at truth. Tools like science and logic and religion and revelation and so forth. So this profound skepticism is one of the marks of it. In addition to that, there's this blurring of boundaries. Postmodernism hates binaries. We see this in the whole gender discussion where no longer does our society think that humankind is divided into male and female, but sexuality is instead presented on a spectrum or as it relates to sexual preference where uh, heterosexuality or homosexuality exists on a spectrum. And according to the theory, everyone is a little bit gay or more gay, but no one is actually fully hetero or no one is actually fully homosexual because that's a binary and it doesn't like binaries. Another distinguishing mark is the power of language. According to postmodernism, language itself is this tool of oppression. So there's this assumed freedom to redefine terms, kind of like Orwell writes about doublespeak in, in uh, his novel 1984, which is a really good book to understand what's going on in culture. So you see love and marriage and tolerance and gender are all defined in our society. In fact, the Oxford Dictionary just this past week changed the definitions of the word man and the word woman to be more gender inclusive which uh, doesn't make any sense whatsoever to change the, the meaning of a word about gender to be more gender inclusive. So if you've ever wondered why at some point it's offensive to say the word gay and appropriate to say the word homosexual, and then now it's the reverse where it's appropriate to, to say the word gay, but it's actually offensive to say the word homosexual, or why the term queer is offensive and then it's appropriate and it keeps sh shifting that's very intentional. The reason for that is it intentionally attempts to destabilize language as a tool to arrive at truth. So it's using language to deconstruct our uh, sources of authority. In addition to that, there is this profound cultural relativism. Given that their view is that objective truth might exist, but it's unattainable, moral and ethical issues are no longer seen as universal and absolute, but rather relative. So critical theory in particular insists that no cultural norms can be considered objectively better 
than others. So there is uh, ideas out there that you can't critique pedophilia. You can't critique cannibalism. You can't critique murder if a culture actually holds that to be authoritative for them. There's no logical inconsistency here because the subtle implication is that no cultural norms are better except for the one that says that no norms are better. By the way, this is why a number of keen opponents to same-sex marriage when that was being debated in 2013 and 14 uh, and into 2015, why these opponents to the idea predicted that we would soon have to argue over the question of pedophilia and polygamy and so forth because the very theory that was used to undergird same-sex marriage naturally dismantles not only the borders of heterosexual marriage, but marriage itself and monogamy and any other sort of objective standard because it is all culturally relative. And then lastly, you see the loss of the individual and the universal. This is really fascinating, but kind of complex, so bear with me for a second. So post-modernity and critical theory, they are obsessed with group identity, just like their philosophical stepfather, Marxism. So imagine that you're someone who identifies as gay. According to critical theory, that then now becomes your primary identification. You don't find identity in areas where you differ from the group as an individual or even in your shared similarities with your non-gay friends. For instance, for instance your, your, ethnic, uh, your ethnicity or your nationality or your uh, just common shared humanity or something, your identity is very group-centered. You see this in critical race theory. Uh, we talked about that when we talked about race. So uh, a, a black man who happens to be politically conservative, it's considered a sellout because that's forsaking the group and it's all about the group, right? Your, your identity is not individual and it's not universal, it's group-centered. So Shakespeare said, this above all, to thine own self be true. Postmodernism and critical theory says that's wrong. This above all, to thine own group be true. The worst sin is to forsake your group, to think as an individual or even to think as a human in general. You have to think according to the group. So when you understand this, you therefore see why postmodernism completely deconstructs historic views of sexuality. Historically, sex and gender are easily observable physically, biologically, genetically. It wasn't arbitrary, it wasn't relative, but postmodernism rejects science and elevates group identity and stresses feelings over facts. So James Lindsay and Helen uh, Pluckrose neither of whom are politically conservative or uh, religiously conservative, but uh, they are opposed uh, to critical theory and postmodernism, and they, uh, they have this uh, good sort of summary. To be queer allows someone to be simultaneously male, female, or neither. To present as masculine, feminine, feminine neuter, or any mixture of the three, and to adopt any sexuality, and to change any of these identities at any time, or to deny that they mean anything in the first place. So that's postmodernism and critical theory. Now, why is all of this important? Why do we spend the bulk of our time today talking about all of these philosophical and historical and contextual reasons uh, for our cultural context? Let me give you this illustration. Imagine that you wake up, and you wake up really late on, uh, on 9-11, 9-11-2001, and you've not yet heard about the Twin Tower attacks. So you see everyone, you, you run into people, and. You see people praying, you see people crying, you see people waving American flags, your cousin calls you and says you signed up for the military and all of these kinds of things and you're just absolutely confused, you're bewildered. And then someone tells you about the tax and it makes a little bit more sense 
But for whatever reason, you aren't at all familiar with Islamic terrorism and the concept of jihad. So then someone explains that to you and all of a sudden everything begins to kind of come into place. Everything begins to make sense. That's what understanding these historical and philosophical contexts does. It provides these lenses to be able to understand culture so that you're better prepared to engage it. But should we engage it? That's the question. Why should we even care? Why can't we just be libertarian like Ron Swanson, right? Live and let live. What happens in your bedroom is your business and not mine. And the simple answer for that is because we care. Because Christ calls us to love our neighbor and love means doing what is best for them, even when it offends them and even when it costs us. And make no mistake, this is offensive. A lot of what we're talking about today is offensive. That's why a lot of voices today advocate for softening the edges, for being more nice and kind and tolerant as culture defines it. And by that, they mean that we simply capitulate on these issues. But here's why that's profoundly unloving, because it doesn't actually help those we're claiming to love. We should oppose this new cultural sexuality for the same reason that we should oppose what is today called anti-racism or modern social justice or modern feminism or many of the arguments for gun control or progressive environmentalism or consistent pacifism or whatever because in each case, they're, they're presented as being loving and kind but they actually end up hurting people. They're unbiblical wolves in biblical sheep's clothing. And so we see that in sexuality. You see it scientifically, you see it sociologically, you see it scripturally. Multiple scientific and sociological studies have shown that homosexuality and transgenderism have profound adverse effects, including higher suicide rates and depression and breakdown of the family and so forth. But even more than that, the Bible is absolutely clear. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if we aim for acceptance and tolerance and dilute the truth in an effort to have people think we're nice and kind, that just means more people think that you're really swell while they're going to hell. And is that really a win? Is the Great Commission to go forth and be liked? I'm not saying we should be jerks like those quote unquote Christians who picket funerals with signs that says God hates gays or something. But I'm saying that love should compel us to speak the truth even when that truth is offensive, especially when that truth is offensive. If we really believe in judgment and eternal punishment, if we really believe that homosexuality, transgenderism, adultery, fornication, and all other sins are worthy of condemnation, then it's profoundly unloving for us to simply live and let live. How cruel is it to see a blind person about to walk off a cliff and to say, I don't wanna yell at them. I don't wanna yell at them to watch out because they might think I'm mean. Christians today care far too much about being liked, far too little about actually loving people. In other words, when we say we're loving people, we're really just loving ourselves, our own comfort, our own convenience, our own reputation. If God's commands are most, if God's commands are true and they are, then they're most aligned with his will and thus they're the means of our joy. And if love is doing what's best for others, even when it costs us, as we talked about in 1 John, how can we not speak prophetically to the culture? So what is it that we should say? Let me end with these seven thoughts on sexuality. 
over against our culture and all of the assumptions of our culture, we hold these things to be true. Number one, sexuality is part of God's good creation. By that I mean a couple of things. First, we were not created as asexual beings. We're created male or female. Female. Your gender and your sexuality is not incidental. It's not accidental. They're, they're, that's a part of God's creative design for you. And second, as a consequence of the first point, sexual desire and longing and even sex itself are all good. It can be abused, obviously. It can be twisted. It can become deviant. In fact, anything outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage is disordered. But sex itself and sexuality are good gifts from God. Second, that sexuality is a metaphor for worship. You see that throughout scripture where Israel or the church are represented as brides, but the connection exists even beyond Judeo-Christian religion. This isn't something we just get from the Bible. This is why temple worship is historically connected to prostitution in a number of pagan cultures and religions. So sex was created at least in part as a metaphor, an image of worship. So if you wanna know why sexual morality is so rampant, part of the reason is because we were created to worship. And so when our worship is distorted, so is our sexuality. And that brings us to the next point which is perversion of sexuality is related to idolatry. You see that most clearly in Romans chapter one, Romans 1, 22 through 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the problem, according to Romans one, is idolatry. This, this affects all of mankind, the worship of creation over creator. And what's the result of that? Keep reading. Get down to 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Paul's point here isn't that homosexuality is the absolute worst sin. That's not his point at all. His point is that homosexuality is a vivid picture of idolatry. How so? Well, think about it like this. What is properly ordered worship? It's when the creature... You and I, created beings, worship the creator. The creature worships the creator. That's properly ordered worship. What is idolatry, though? Idolatry is when the creature worships creation. Rather than worshiping the creator, we've traded that, according to Romans 1, and we worship creation. And that's a big difference. And Paul's point is that homosexuality in particular pictures that tragic exchange. How so? Well, in proper worship, man worships that which is like him, but also unlike him. God is like man, or man is like God, to be more precise, but also unlike him. So proper sexuality reflects that. Man is like woman, but also unlike woman. There's ways that we're like in our shared humanity, but also ways that we're different in our gender. Contrast that with homosexuality where man is with man or woman with woman. Rather than being joined to that which is both like and unlike, there is only like, which is a picture of idolatry. Creature worshiping that which is just like himself, creation. So it should be no surprise that our culture is drifting in regards to the area of sexuality because we've already drifted in worship. 
Immorality is God's judgment on idolatry. So we're reaping as a society what we've already sown, various idols. Next, church tradition is unanimously and universally clear on these issues of sexuality. Lots of things have been questioned throughout church history. We've talked about these before. Arguments on both sides regarding pre, post, or amillennialism. Baptism, church governance, even things like just war and capital punishment have had a few detractors. But when it comes to things like homosexuality, transgenderism, the meaning of marriage, fornication, adultery, and the like, there has been a consistent and unanimous united front which makes it so strange and absurd to see a slew of contemporary quote-unquote Christian teachers like Jen Hatmaker and Rachel Held Evans and Matthew Vines try to redefine sexuality to include homosexuality and gender nonconformity and transgenderism. We should always be skeptical of any position that has never been held by any Christian pastor or theologian throughout history. Even Luther in the Great Reformation didn't come up with perfectly new ideas Besides every single objection or argument advanced to append not just 2,000 years of Christian, but thousands of years of Jewish tradition as well, every single argument or objection has decisive, definitive responses. So go back and listen to some of those teachings or uh, feel free to text in a question. Next, biblical boundaries on sexuality are good and beautiful. Scholar uh, Richard Bauckham writes, biblical commands are not arbitrary decrees, but correspond to the way the world is and will be. So biblical boundaries in regards to sexuality are not oppressive. They're not. It might feel that way, especially if this is an area where your uh, desires are disordered, but they're actually freeing. They're meant for your joy. They're meant for your flourishing. They're like a warning label on a bottle of poison. When we rebel against God's boundaries, we're like a kid who finds a bottle of bleach and says, you're not the boss of my drinking. You can't tell me what to drink or not to drink. And we down the whole bottle to our own harm. Biblical boundaries on sexuality are good and beautiful and right, and they lead to flourishing and joy. Six, to find your ultimate identity in anything other than Christ is idolatry. Your ultimate identity is not in your gender, or in your sexuality, or your race, or ethnicity, or your nationality. This is why identity politics is so wrong. Your identity is in Christ and Christ alone. This is what Paul means in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. His point isn't that ethnicity or gender doesn't exist. His point is that they are irrelevant in regards to your ultimate identity. Your identity is in Christ alone and thus your allegiance is to Christ alone, not to your experience or your group identity or whatever it might be. And then lastly, the gospel is our hope. Things seem pretty crazy right now if you're paying attention. It's kind of scary how quickly culture is changing for the worse and this might feel hopeless. The fact that culture around us is completely permeated by these assumptions, even evangelical leaders are capitulating on, uh, on a lot of this. So I want to end with where we began. Rome, 2,000 years ago, absolute mess, polytheism, idolatry, pedophilia, homosexuality, prostitution, polygamy, adultery, rampant divorce, and so forth. And yet something drastically changed the empire and the course of world history. What was it? What was the gospel? Is the good news the kingdom of God inaugurated in Christ Jesus and one day consummated when he returns. And earlier we read from 1 Corinthians that we should care about this because the sexually immoral and the drunkards and the swindlers will not inherit the kingdom, 
We stopped reading at verse 10, but if we were to keep reading, we would have read this in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So this is our boast, not our own inherent goodness. We have none. Not our efforts to clean ourselves up. We just wallow in our filth. Our boast is instead in the regenerating and renewing work of the Spirit of God through the gospel that leads men and women to repentance. So there's hope even today that the gospel can once again transform society. And even if it doesn't, even if the spirit of Rome, the spirit of Babylon swallows up our entire country, there is another city to come whose light and hope and purity and justice will never end. So come Lord Jesus, let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, your word. I thank you for how clear your word is on these issues, even though our culture is not clear. And so I pray um, that you would help us. You would help us uh, first and foremost to stand firm for the truth, to not capitulate, to not compromise, to not dilute or water down the truth. And then secondly, Lord, that we would not swing the pendulum though into uh, being unnecessarily offensive or unnecessarily harsh or cruel or whatever it might be that you might help us as we speak the truth to do so in a way that is also loving and kind. And, uh, and so help us. I just confess at times that can be difficult and yet you're good. And so I pray for your help in Christ's name, amen.